if you're in a place mentally where you can be supportive of a loved one, go to AA with them or whatever self-help group they do, engage with their sober peers and really try and put yourself in their shoes. Because that that's where my love for my brother always came through, even in the moments when I was pissed. But if I came back to like, okay, I can see, I can see why he's behaving this way, or I can, you know, I can listen to him in a moment when I can hear it. And I don't try, I try not to judge. And I try to just sit here and be still with him. It always brought me back to a place of like, all right, can I do anything to help in this particular scenario? That was Arden O'Connor. And this is the share podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast. And today we have Arden O'Connor joining us on the show, and she is the founder and CEO of the O'Connor Professional Group which helps individuals suffering from addiction and their families for providing concierge services for treatment options and recovery plans. Arden knows firsthand what it's like to be in a family where an addict is causing chaos. Her little brother, Chris O'Connor, went to 14 different rehabs before finding long-lasting recovery. Now, for those of you that remember episode number 125, Chris and Dave of the Dopey Podcast, that is the Chris we're referring to today. It's a spectacular episode. It's hysterical. We do all kinds of deep dives into all kinds of crazy shit. And for those of you that don't know what the Dopey Podcast is, it's the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and takes you through the dark comedy of drug addiction. So if anyone would know what it's like to have a crazy drug addict running around in the family wreaking chaos and mayhem, then Arden is the one to talk to. In this interview, we dive into questions such as, what is the best way for families to help an addict? How can families of addicts avoid codependent and enabling behavior? How can parents use drug testing and alcohol monitoring to help treat addiction? So let's dive into Arden's story. She talks extensively about her experience as the sister of an addict and outlines a no-nonsense strategy for codependency, enabling, and recovery for both the addict and their traumatized families. So let's dive into Arden's story, but first, a quick message from our sponsor. Organifi is an organic superfood supplement that takes 30 seconds to make with no blending, no juicing, and no cleanup. Organifi is a coconut and ashwagandha-infused green juice that is gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, and absolutely delicious. My wife and I drink it every single day. We absolutely love it. We've noticed a significant difference in reduced stress, in improved digestion, improved mental clarity, and it boosts our energy levels. So not only is it organic and upgraded with 11 superfoods, if you order now, you're going to get 20% off your order by using promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R. So go to the Organifi website, www.organifi.com. Organifi is spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. And make sure to put in your promo code SHARE, S-H-A-I-R, and get 20% off your order today. And for those of you who are wondering what's the best way to support the show, well, here's a few options. Number one, you can always donate to the Share Podcast. And the easiest way to donate to the show is by going to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go to the top right corner of the website, click on the donate button, or on any of the yellow donate buttons 
throughout the page. And there, you can donate via PayPal, Patreon, or Bitcoin. All of your donations will go exclusively towards covering the production costs for the Share Podcast. And all those production costs are listed on the donation page, as well as all the information you need to know to make your donation today. The second way to help support the show is by subscribing on iTunes if you have an iPhone or on Stitcher Radio or any other podcast-related app for your Android phone. When you subscribe to the show, it helps boost the ratings for the show as well as the show's ranking on those platforms and will make it so much easier for anyone seeking a recovery-related podcast to find the show. And while you're there, please feel free to give us a five-star rating and review. It's another spectacular way to support the show. And I also love reading those reviews at the beginning of each episode. And speaking of kick-ass reviews, our next review is from Kelly. And Kelly is from Winnipeg, Canada. And she writes, Grateful. Your podcast is part of my Tuesday dinner, and I look forward to it each week. Stories of strength from you and your guests are truly inspirational. I'm grateful to my HP baby and my second family who helped to keep me sober. That includes you, Omar, and your team who make your show happen. Cheers, Kelly from Winnipeg, Canada. Spectacular review. Thank you, Kelly. And it's an honor to be a part of your Tuesday dinner. So on behalf of Team Share, thank you. God bless and HP, baby. And the third way to help support the Share Podcast is to share the podcast with your friends. If you love the Share Podcast, if you're getting value from the episodes, then share them on your social media network. Share them with your friends at meetings and help us spread that message of hope and recovery. And while you're recommending the podcast, also make sure to invite your friends to join us on the Share Podcast Facebook private group. There are thousands of recovering addicts that are positive, helpful, and being of service. So if you're not ready to go to meetings or you need an addition to your meetings, then this is a perfect place to get support and be of service. So go to Facebook, type in S-H-A-I-R in the search bar, share a private group, and the private Facebook group will pop right up. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey Arden, thanks for joining us. Hey y'all, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm doing really well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, wonderful. This is exciting. <laughs> All <laughs> right. So, folks, today we have Arden O'Connor joining us on the Share Podcast. And Arden is Chris O'Connor's sister, Chris of Chris and Dave of the Dopey Podcast. So I, it is absolutely an honor and a privilege to have you on the show today, Arden. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. Now, Arden is the founder and CEO at the O'Connor Professional Group. The O'Connor Professional Group offers a continuum of services to guide individuals and families through the behavioral health industry by providing concierge services to identify suitable treatment and aftercare options. 
and assist in creating and implementing sustainable recovery plans. They help address the needs of those struggling with behavioral health issues that include addictions, mental health issues, eating disorders, and mood and personality disorders. OPG also supports individuals on the autism spectrum and young adults lacking clinical diagnosis who are struggling with transitions to independence. Wow, sounds like you got a lot going on over there, Arden. Quite a mouthful when you say it just like that. Yes, we, we are a busy bit bunch of people right now. What's amazing is that the inspiration behind all of this is Chris's addiction, right? That's absolutely true. That is so wild. It's, when I was talking to Chris uh, after our interview, uh, after I was on his show and he was on mine, uh, and we were talking a little bit afterwards, and he was telling me about you know, the impact he had in your life and the inspiration. And I said, wow, she's probably got one whopper of a story. Let's get her on the show. So I'm really glad you decided to join us. And uh, Arden is an open book, right? That's right. That's right. Very much so. All right. So let's dive right in here. So first of all, tell us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis. You know, give us an, give us an idea of, of what it is that goes on in the, the days and times of Arden and how you manage all this work that you have going on? Well, uh, it's a great question. And, and the benefit of my job is that no day is exactly the same. On an average day, I own the company and do mostly the business development. Um, I'll speak to families a little bit in the beginning about services, but I'm blessed to have a fantastic team who manages more of the day-to-day operations and make sure that the cases are getting the good therapeutic care that they need. Um, so for me, you know, these days we've been really lucky in that the companies continue to grow. So in any given day, I'm probably talking to one to three families who are calling, trying to understand what we do and how we might be helpful. Um, I'm probably meeting with other professionals in the field that I think might be able to send families our way who are in need of help. And that could be anything from a therapist to a divorce attorney to somebody who's on the financial advising side. Uh, We've now had the the good problem that I've always wanted to have, but it's still a problem nonetheless of needing additional staff. So right now we're in the middle of what I call operational nightmares where we're trying to... (laughs) to streamline our billing process and trying to interview candidates for different positions. And, um, and really, you know, on a daily basis these days, and especially the last six months, I'm just trying to make sure that like the long to-do list I have is, you know, continuing to, I'm continuing to knock things off it and that I'm following up with families that, that I promised I would get something back to. So, um, part of my job, like I said, that I love is that I could be today, for instance, I was in Connecticut visiting a couple of sober homes, talking with a couple of counseling centers. Uh, I traveled back up to Boston, did a bunch of stuff at the office, met a family who's interested in services. Um, and then now I'm, I'm blessed to be on the podcast with you. So it's, it's, it's unique every day. Um, but I'm a person who hits the ground running most mornings and, and my days are pretty scheduled. Okay. So that comes to my next question. I recently uh, started working here at Costa Rica Recovery. It's a, it's a rehab center here in Costa Rica that's been around for 11 years, um, and I just recently started. Now, here's something that I'm noticing is my energy, okay? So what's happening is, is that I'm coming in contact with all this new 
energy. And some of it is very toxic and negative. And so it's like a back and forth. So I'm absorbing a lot of a lot of this energy. So I'm, I'm assuming that this is probably something that has either happened to you initially or is still going on with you. Um, and I'd love to know how you manage that. That is a very good question. And I, I by no means am a guru on self-care. Um, I do, I would say there's a few things I do. I take a lot of vacation. Uh, I'm never, <laughs> I do, I do. I did. Awesome. My, my team will tell you tomorrow. I, I take, <laughs> uh, I take a lot of vacation and I, you know, I'm I, taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> tell your boss. I said, give you more vacation. No, you know, for me, I'm never totally off. I own the company. So even on vacation, even on the beach, even, in the middle of a lunch with friends, um, you know, there's a potential someone's going to call me and ask me a question and I'm going to have to answer. And I've done it. I've taken notes, you know, from a beautiful beach overlooking the water as my friends are in the ocean beckoning me to come and I'm still on the phone with the family. So, you know, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. I I do take a lot of time, uh, for myself. I found for me, I, I found a, a little, Solace in a place called Canyon Ranch, which is a beautiful spa facility out in the Berkshires. For me, if I take a two-night or a three-night trip there with my mom, it's just a great way to decompress, get back into healthy exercise and eating routines, which for me, it's easy to fall out of those when I travel a lot and I'm working pretty intensively. Um, I also try on a daily basis to do little self-care routines because Getting to the beach or to Canyon Ranch is great, but there are months that that's just not going to happen. And there are weekends that I've definitely worked the whole week. And so, you know, tomorrow is a silly example. I have a, a sort of back to back phone calls scheduled throughout the day, and I'm going to go to a meeting and I'll Uber to the meeting, even if it's 25 minutes outside the city, um, instead of taking my car because it's easier for me to make phone calls. I learned that trick maybe. Uh, six months ago where I started realizing I'm on the road a lot. And if, if I'm traveling, it's easier for me to take phone calls and be present during those calls and take notes or whatever. If I'm not driving, which never seems safe. Um, <laughs> although I've done it, I will admit. So I, I try to, I try to take little moments like that. If, if a, an appointment gets canceled, I try to remind myself that I don't have to fill that slot with something else. I can take a half hour to eat a meal and watch something on Netflix. Um, and I'm trying, and this is not easy for me. Uh, my brother is very into like going to these silent retreats. I'd last 30 seconds cause I'd be wanting to talk. Um, and I'm not great at meditating or anything like that. I do a little bit of yoga, but I also really at the end of the day, try to listen to my body. And if I am exhausted, even though every night I go to bed thinking I should have gotten this done and that done, I really try to remember like, okay, you're just not in a headspace where you're going to be effective. So what are there two things you need to do that are essential to get done? Can you do them in a half hour? And can you then assume everything else can roll over to the next day and you'll have to deal with it then? I love that. That is some, that is great. Um, I just recently was listening to a podcast. Uh, it's called The One Thing. There's also a book called The One Thing. And the question is, you know, what one thing can you handle today that would make everything else uh, less important or not necessary if you just handle that one thing? Uh, So I like that approach of just looking at one or two things that I can handle right now quickly, knock it out of the way, and then just clear clear the deck, so to speak, so that my, you know, I'm not, my brain isn't constantly thinking about what am I missing? What do I need to do? 
um, and get that self-care, that time to yourself. And the, uh, the other reason why I asked too is because of the yoga and the meditation. One of my questions is, is how do you maintain your spiritual condition, that conscious contact with a higher power? For drug addicts, that's something for many of us that's a key element, a key component to our recovery. Do you have some sort of, because uh, you just mentioned kind of briefly, you don't do a lot of meditating, you do a little bit of yoga. That I found has been very helpful, meditating and doing yoga in the morning. But do you have a conscious uh, or a practice, a spiritual practice? I do. So I'm, I'm Catholic. Um, that's how we grew up. And for better or worse, I have remained Catholic. And I, I laugh at that because there are parts of the Catholic faith I really struggle with, some of the rigidity, some of the practices. Um, I always say it, it brings better, it brings more good than bad into my life. And I found priests and parishes where they have a sense of humor and they have what I would consider a more modern or a more moderate view of Catholicism than old school priests. So I do go to church every week. I have a spiritual advisor that I see once a month who's a priest, but very down to earth. You can talk to him about anything. Um, I do. I did use the app for a little bit called Headspace. Mm -hmm. I need to get back into using that. I liked it. I, I think I worked my way up from one to five minute meditations and then tapped out at that. That was like <laughs> as much as I could handle. Um, and, and, you know, I try to have, so, so I, you know, I believe in God. I, I do. I find that that headspace app did really help. Um, I've listened to Brene Brown stuff. I, I really relate, um, to her and Pema Chodron, but I listen to a lot of it in the car when I'm, you know, on a trip, there's certain people who have guidance that I can really relate to mostly about, um, for me, it's certain emotions, shame, guilt, those two kind of run, run roughshod over, over me at times. And I can, I find I can be very reactive if those emotions come up. And then, um, Pema Trojan, I've, I've actually seen her speak live at the Omega Institute, which I loved. Uh, again, I, I cut short the experience. I think I lasted a day and a half out of the three day workshop cause I just got too restless, but I, you know, I have a pretty good sense of humor about, saying, Hey, this is what you could commit to and take, you know, feel grateful that you got to participate and you had the resources to do so both emotionally, financially, and that you actually got the experience. Um, and I try to just sort of forgive myself. So long way away, long winded way of saying I, you know, I, I come from a particularly religious background, but I do, you know, I've, I, I like the Buddhist teachings. Um, and I try to, I try to enjoy nature. I, I'm trying more and more I find that the higher power, in addition to just God in general, comes from me being in nature, you know, taking a walk from my dogs and not having my iPhone plugged in where I still can get text messages, but actually watching their reaction to, to seeing a bunny and flying through the woods after it, you know, really trying to notice the small things too. So absolutely. So yes, I do have it. Good, good. And I think I, you know, I think it's very important. I think the nature aspect is key. Even last week, uh, I did something I hadn't done in a long time, which is take my shoes off and my socks off and go into the grass and just walk on the grass, right? Just let, just to get grounded. Right? I just was feeling, I don't know if the right word was toxic or if the right word is just overwhelmed or what it was, but I just needed to get grounded. And I was like trying everything that I knew, everything that I've discussed on podcasts and every suggestion that I've gotten during this process, which in many cases is just lots of water, ground yourself, touch some dirt, get, you know, connect with, with earth, do 
a meditation, uh, do some yoga, um, and eat clean, right? And and just try and and do some very holistic uh, self care in this in this uh, in delicate moments in delicate moments. So I definitely like to to talk uh, you know to get into that. Um, and I think and I and I get a lot of people that I interview that nature really connects them with spirit. And I can understand why. You know, there's it's so there's so many things in nature that are powers greater than we are, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's been one of the best pieces about having dogs. When I first said I was going to get them, you know, one of the things my mom kept saying is you travel so much, you work so hard, like how are you ever going to manage it? And I think, you know, similar to nature, you can't control whether it rains or it's sunny out in a day. You can't make the sunset later because you want to send off the last email. And I find the same is true for animals. Like I, the other little thing you, when you talk about the one thing, one thing I do do for every day is come in, sit on my floor, throw my bags down when I first get home and let them jump all over me and get excited. And, you know, for me, it's like, even if it's 30 seconds to five minutes, it's a time when I'm not feeling like I'm beholden to something else or trying to walk and talk at the same time. Um, and I, I find for me, it can be to your point, like very grounding and remind you that it, you know, the world is much bigger than what's on your, your phone or what your next task is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So now we've got a general idea of, you know, what you do and we're going to get, actually, I want to touch further into actually what you do into more detail at the O'Connor professional group, but now it's time to, to dive into the story. Okay, I'd like to hear the story as early as you can remember about your relationship with Chris and how it evolved, you know, um, what roles you played as you guys were growing up as kids, how close you were, how uh, distant you got at some point, you know. Tell us the story of, you know, when you can remember that things started, you know, changing and evolving in Chris's life and the impact it was having in your life and then in your family's life. Um, and then finally, ultimately, until you started working on the O'Connor Project. So, Arden, take it away. Okay, so not to sound cheesy, but we, do we have like 12 hours for the story? Because I, I could go. <laughs> I could go. Bring um, it. Yeah, so, so I'll give the... I'll tr- I talk very fast, so hopefully I'll, I'll condense 12 hours into 12 minutes. Um, so, you know, we come from, just to give you context, we come from... A, upper middle class, you know, privileged family from Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, which is a suburb outside of Boston. There are three of us, my brother, Matt, who's two years younger than me. He's also in recovery. Myself, I'm a, I'm a normie or whatever other term you want to use. Um, and then my youngest brother, Chris. So Chris is seven years younger than me. And then my parents, um, my dad has been is 30 some years in recovery. My mom is, is similar to me. Uh, we both were blessed to have escaped the gene. Nice. Um, yeah, I, yeah. But I, you know, I often will say we have a big Irish Catholic family. We have addiction on both sides of the family. So it's not something that I grew up naive to or, or didn't know existed. Um, and this set the stage a little bit, you know, the dynamic given that I'm seven years older than Chris was that I was more of a third parent. Um, I think my brother, Matt, played sort of half of a supervisory role with him and then half of a peer role with him. I was much more like the one I was, first of all, we follow birth order very um, directly. I was like the child who just did everything by the books. I was a big nerd. I didn't drink until I was 21. Um, You know, I was just a very, I went to Harvard undergrad. I was like very 
just what you would picture as the total geek. And Chris was literally the opposite end of the spectrum, like an absolute maniac. So I can remember from when he was a little kid, you know, and I'm talking two, three years old, he was diving off a diving board and doing a flip, you know, off a diving board. At two? Like, just go, at two, three years old, would go in head first. He would go under the water. I mean, he was a maniac ever since he was like a little, little boy and had to be held back. And no big surprise, you know, he had ADHD, which got diagnosed when he was a little kid. Um, and, and But he, he had this... I. It's funny because I look back years later and my parents will, we have a very kind of gallow sense of humor in my family. And my dad will say, maybe you guys were the cause of all these problems because we were, you know, we were the type of siblings who'd kick him under the table and then he'd scream and then he'd get in trouble. Like we would, we had very much the kind of personality where you could goad him into doing something you knew was going to be funny, but likely not the best idea for him. And he, he didn't know how to, self-regulate so he would he would do something impulsive and then my parents would you know Chris stop it you know, get yelled at um we have this one picture of him as a little boy um and my brother is talking to my mom everyone looks like they're dressed to the nines and there's my dad has a finger literally wagging at my brother Chris and Chris's hands are flipped up like what what I didn't do anything and I always say like if I could have a that like encapsulated his childhood. You know, I, I, it wasn't my fault. Um, oh, I so get that. Oh my God. It sounds and, like and you're talking talk, about me. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. Every time I talk to a family about challenges with their child or a parent about their, you know, son, it's a very similar story. So from a very young age, he was like this very charming um, kid who was just like all over the place. And, and I remember, you know, he we lived in Newton for a very long time. He went to a school where he had to wear a shirt. It was very strict. Our family moved to Arizona. Um, and now the school's changed a bit. But when we went, it was a little bit, it was much looser on rules. You could kind of wear whatever you want. And I think it was a big adjustment for him. So um, I think in terms of testing behaviors, he was in an environment that was much less structured. He had ADHD. And whereas my brother and I both, matriculated pretty well. I mean, I was upset that I had to leave my like very nerdy girl school and go to a co-ed school. This was like mortifying to me. You know, my brother, Chris, I think was psyched. He was in sunshine and he could wear his flip flops and, and he started and, and his interactions with girls weren't so great. Like, you know, he would, a girl would annoy him and, you know, he would take the binder that she was carrying and he'd throw it on the ground oh, and literally stomp on it. You know, just like very, <laughs> But like harmless behavior in many ways, but stuff that was just indicative of a boy mm -hmm. just trying to be kind of like roughhousing. But he was constantly in trouble. My mom used to describe that she would walk up to the school and she would get these glowing reports for me. And she would ask, and my brother Matt did very well in school. And then she would go to Chris's grade school and she could see the teacher from across the yard and she would either give her a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Um, and there are like numerous stories of Chris mouthing off in school, just doing like stupid stuff. There was one, one of my favorite stories, and it's it's hard to describe these without acting them out. But one of my favorite stories was him. He there was a music rehearsal in a in a like an assembly hall that we had at the school. My mother happened to be in there. I think there was some kind of parent meeting in there as well, and Chris was supposed to be. 
you you were told they were told not to cut through the music hall repeatedly. Well, Chris was late and wasn't paying attention and literally ran through the music hall and like I think put his foot through someone's violin. Like it was the most ridiculous story. And I remember because I, I you know, I was much older. I was at the high school and I literally there was a blind teacher that was Chris's teacher. Um, and I used, and he actually really liked Chris cause I think he was a rebellious kid himself. And I remember going to read to this teacher, like I would read some of the assignments so he could grade them. And he used to be able to tell, maybe he could do this for all the students when Chris specifically would come into his classroom, I'd be sitting in there reading to him. He can't see anything. And I always was convinced it was cause Chris was just like a bull in a China shop. He would drop stuff and fall. And I, before Chris even said a word, the teacher would say, Hey Chris, how are you? And I would laugh hysterically cause I'd think, Oh my gosh, like this kid is just unreal. <laughs> so, um, so he always was like a daredevil and he started drinking and smoking pot pretty early, like 13. Um, I, by the time he was getting into middle school years, I, I was seven years older. So I was going to college and I remember even when I was in college, my parents calling and my mom crying and saying like things were frustrating with Chris and she was having trouble with him. And, um, and you know, I would listen again just cause I got along very well with my parents and, and would try to be helpful. Ultimately I graduated from college and I opened up a group home for kids in the foster care system. And I have vivid memories of, of yelling at my brother and saying like, and, and so the kids I worked with were 15 to 22 year old boys. They'd been through the foster care system. So abuse, neglect in the home, most of them had substance abuse issues, mental health issues. Lots of them were criminally involved. And my brother, Chris, was doing some of the same behaviors. And I remember vividly pulling up my car to this group home. And these kids were out of control. You know, they called me every name in the book. They were very difficult to deal with on a behavior perspective. But I adored them. I loved working with them. How old were, you, I, were, you, well, how old were you when you did this? I was like 22 when I started it. Um, so it was a lot of responsibility. Wow. And yeah, it was, very, it was a very tough job. But it was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. I still am in touch with a few of the kids today who some of them who have done very, very well. And some of them many of them due to addiction issues actually have had a lot of challenges. So, um, but with one of them in particular, like I remember this one instance of pulling up into the driveway of the group home and I, you know, I'm about to get read the riot act by five of these kids who were going to tell me like, and they're not kids, you know, they're 17, 18 years old. And I probably, by the time the home had opened was like, I started the process at 22. So I was probably like 24. So I wasn't that much older. And they're about to tell me why my staff stink and why this is wrong and that's wrong. So I'm pulling up. I could see them waiting in the driveway to start complaining about something. And I am literally screaming at Chris on the phone saying, like, I know why the kids I'm working with have problems. Like, you were raised with money. You were raised with, like, wonderful parents. You were you don't have this big trauma in your background. You weren't abused. Like, what is your, you know, I think I actually, there were some expl you know, explicative words in there. Like, what is your effing problem? You can use any of those on this show okay. if you'd like. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I do have a terrible mouth, so I try to Brilliant. hide it sometimes. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I remember saying to him, like, you're just an entitled brat. Like, how do you do this to mom and dad? So, and I actually, at one point forced him to go to this jail that I used to volunteer to sort of nice. thinking I'd scare him straight. And, you know, I, I had a very, um, I had that sort of mentality with him, but I also on the flip side would, would then when stuff really hit the fan, you know, during his college years, when 
you know, he, he barely made it into college. He, he was sort of, he, he did well enough to get into Georgetown. And I got to be honest, to this day, like when I speak publicly about Chris, I always say he's the brightest, the best looking and the most athletic out of the three of us. Like he was given all of those three gifts to a much better degree than even I, certainly than me. And to some extent than my brother, Matt, and, uh, I, I always say he got too many things too easily. So I, mm. well, I was lucky enough to make it into Harvard and I'm no dummy. I had to work very hard. You know, I, had to, I took practice SAT tests every Saturday morning for a year to get my SAT scores up. Like I would just get up, take a test at 10 AM till 12, do it the next Saturday and gradually got my scores up. Chris scored an F- a 1580 without even like, I don't even think he opened a book. Uh, um, he just is that he's just that type of kid. Mm-hmm. And so, um, a lot came easy to him, but he, he made it when I say he barely made it to college, his grades were fine in high school, but you know, he, he had substance abuse issues. I think we all thought it was mostly drinking and maybe a little marijuana. We had no idea the extent of his problems. Um, but even back in high school, you know, he had a way with my parents that on the one hand, they were very strict, you know, their old school family. My dad was not like, Oh, how do you feel about this? He would just like go into my brother's room and look under the sinks and try and find, you know, evidence of anything that he thought my brother may be using. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he was a little intimidated by my brother. I remember my brother, throwing a party or, or, or like inviting friends over in high school and them saying like, okay, well they're down there. I, how do we get them out of here? And I remember like, I went, I'm like, I'll tell them. And I went downstairs. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is great. And get, see you later guys. It's like, this is done. And I always, and, and some of that training came from like, I ran this group home of kids who were always telling me to go pound sand and I had to be authoritative, even though in my head I'm like, well, I don't really have, I can't really do much if they tell me you're not going to do it. But I, I always projected a sense of confidence. And so with Chris, I would try to do that to the extent it was possible, which it wasn't most of the time. Um, but I remember, you know, I remember when he went off to college and I vividly remember like what I always say is like one of the seminal moments for our family. He, I don't know how we caught on to it. I think he just wasn't in contact with our family for so long that my parents said, we, we need to figure out what's going on with him. And I said, I think you should fly down there. And my dad thought this was like ridiculous. And I pushed it and I was like, and I want to come. And he, again, he was like, well, you have your job, you know? And I was like, no, I own, you know, I, I run this nonprofit. I can leave for the day. So I went down with my parents and again, we got to the campus and they were skittish outside his dorm room. And in my head, I'm like, all right, we just came down here for the day to DC to see what's going on. Like, I'm not going to stand outside the door and hope one of his friends let us in. So I just like walked into the dorm and bounded on the door. And sure enough, he was like shocked to see me there. And he's asleep in his bed and there's alcohol all over the place. And it's, you know, it's 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. So he comes outside and mom and dad are there. And you know, it's and it's painful to watch as the sister who's seven years older because my dad is like trying to keep a stiff upper lip, and Chris is like, "Yeah, I just he's been drinking a little too much," and my dad's like, "No, well, you know, you'll pull it together." And in my head, I'm like, "This, this doesn't look too right." Um, and that was probably the fall of his sophomore year. He made it through his first year. That was probably fall of sophomore year, and by that winter you know, he'd come home for Christmas and he basically admitted he was going to fail all his classes. And I, and I also remember this cause I had a, my mother's mother. So my grandmother on my mom's side was, was not the easiest woman. And 
you know, she's complaining because, I don't know, she didn't get the candy she wanted at, at a certain hour. And meanwhile, my parents are like, okay, the shit's really hit the fan. What's Chris going to do? And that's when we basically decided to send him to Sierra Tucson. Um, and I, I just vividly remember, like, my mom trying to manage this, my grandmother huffing and puffing because things haven't worked out the way she had hoped for her beautiful. And really, I, we weren't admitting to her what was going on. We just said, you know, Chris is going through some stuff and we're going to try and get him some help. Um, but she's, you know, off in a corner pouting or whatever she was doing. And, and the rest of us are, and when I say the rest of us, primarily my parents and I were trying to figure out where he should go. And so that that was the role I, I basically played was like, certainly tattletale if we went on vacation where I would be like, you can't have more than a beer. And if he did, I'd come home and tell. Um, and, and certainly a, sort of a third support to my parents to listen or to try and find resources. Um, and then, you know, he took the journey from Sierra Tucson. My parents did more of like the family weeks and that kind of stuff at the treatment centers. I got more involved later um, in two instances. Once when he got into a really, I guess an AA, they call it a jackpot where he... Uh-huh. Committed a crime when he was high, and um, I got really involved because I was trying to help his attorney figure out what could be a plan that we could put in front of the court uh, that had more credibility than saying we're going to send him to the fifth or the tenth rehab uh, at that point. Um, so I kind of like helped the I, I did made a bunch of phone calls and and helped try and find some resources and write something up for the attorney to review. Um, and then I got very involved in one of his later relapses when my father said, I'm not going to talk to you for a period of time. And I, you know, he went up to mountainside. My other brother was disgusted with him and, and basically said, I need a break. And my mom was willing to stay involved. But, you know, at that point, it's different being a sibling than a parent. I found it easier to remain connected. I wasn't mad. I was more exhausted by his behavior. But I also found like I knew my parents needed a break. So I would go out literally when he was in Mountainside, which was his second to last rehab. I went out every month to visit him. Uh, when he got passes, he would come and stay with me at a local like Comfort Inn. Um, and I got to know him. And eventually I got to know the sober community out in the Berkshires and his sponsor. And really like a, a group of guys that, you know, are just incredible people. Some of the some of the best people, you know, I am blessed to know uh to this day. And some of them have worked for our company and some of them have just been friends of our family or friends of my brothers. I've hosted them at my house. And, um, I always say like, as somebody who does drink socially and, and, and I'm blessed not to have to worry about the, the, although I'm very conscious of how much I drink because of my genetic history, but I am blessed that I don't, I've never taken it to an extreme. Uh, but I've had some of the funniest dinners or the funniest evenings at, you know, Finale, which used to be a bakery place here in Boston with a bunch of sober guys and my brother who, like any true person with an addiction disorder, is like ordering 17 desserts for a table of four. You know, I'm like sitting across the table like I know there's no alcohol involved here, but I think you might want to watch the sugar because we have enough to feed an army here. So. I don't know if that's what you're looking for, and I can go into some of the worst stories or some of the best stories, but um, actually, but I will s- go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you said, but you were going to what? Yeah, but I, I, you know, I will just say, like, through his worst moments, and I have had some moments where I have cursed at my brother, screamed at him, even after starting my company. When I think I'm giving this brilliant advice to parents, like I have gone and done the exact opposite of what I would recommend anybody do in their family. Um, but even in those moments up through the moments where 
you know, he, I just, I think the world of him, he's one of my favorite people on the, on the planet. And it was that way, even when he was in some of his worst moments, I mean, I'd get mad and I'd scream and I'd curse, but I would, at the end of the day, um, I, I just think, I think the world of him and I think the world of many of our folks, which is frankly what sustains me in the work I do. What I hear parents say, is there any hope for families like ours? I, I always say like, I wouldn't be doing this if I, if I didn't think there's hope for everybody. No, there's absolutely hope. And, you know, another one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, on the show is that as, as Chris was telling his story, and there's so much of these 15 different rehabs that he went to, and then, you know, the attorneys and the lawsuits and getting him out of jail and, you know, just the, the level of stress and chaos that was going on in your family life. And then he's also going to school right now to be a clinical psychologist, right? Right. That's exactly right. And I said, you know, you have a, an amazing vantage point when families come to see you because you can tell them, right, the horrific disadvantage you get from enabling your siblings or enabling your children or whatever the case may be. Um, as they navigate through this, because a lot of money was spent in rehabs and in court. Um, and how did that, like, in hindsight now, like you just said it, like what, what you just talked about, there's so many things I would have done and, and goes contrary to the advice I would have given. What are the things that you would have done different in hindsight or, or your parents sure. would have done differently? So... Uh, and I think you're exactly right. I will say there are times where when I start talking to families, they're like, you're brilliant. I'm like, I am not brilliant. I just have been through it. Right. Because so, because I'll say like, oh, he's going to say, you know, silly things. You, somebody goes to a rehab. I hate my roommate. It's so, everybody's so much worse than me here. Like I have heard that nine times over. So, you know, I'll say a few things. I, I on the one hand, I think you know, we were blessed to have the resources to continue to offer care to him and to, and, and the families we work with in total full disclosure, it's a concierge service, which you said in the beginning. So all the families we work with are in the same position. The phrase like hitting rock bottom, that my family was never going to agree to that. And most of the families we work with wouldn't, we talked a lot about raising the bottom. And I always say, I think families, I think Al-Anon is an awesome resource. A lot of families, I think, go and the only message they get out of it is like, if you're not kicking them out of the house, you're, you're enabling them. And, you know, I would say it's not that black and white. And it wasn't that way for our family. There's a far cry from there's a far there's a much bigger difference between giving someone unlimited access to resources to be used at their discretion versus um absolutely cutting them off saying, I don't want to talk to you. You figure out how to get sober because, and there's like a lot of gray in between there. So our job as professionals is to try and figure out as like, well, how family members can set small boundaries. So in our family system, you know, my dad for a while gave up talking to Chris for about six months, even when he said he was going to go into treatment. And a lot of that was because the way I saw, and I used to call my dad the weakest link in the chain, um, you know, he couldn't, if Chris called him in the middle of the night frantic, it was like, I need money, drug dealers are chasing me, or whatever the story of the day was, um, <laughs> my father would just like panic and give it to him, you know, right. and it would never have the goal, you know, you give him cash, so then he'd disappear for a while. So that type of enabling, I think, existed. Um, I think, I don't think we were... I think more so he was my brother wasn't given thousands of dollars to just do whatever he pleased. He was sometimes, you know, at one point he was still fairly early in sobriety, maybe a year, two years 
in, um, and he, he went to a home that we have in the Caribbean. He had access to cash. He started taking money. Eventually he had a relapse and wound up taking money out of ATM. So I think there are certain ways we could have had tighter controls around some of that stuff. But I would say the bigger piece of labeling was letting Chris define his own recovery path. And I know, you know, I know that's a controversial statement because AA is a, you know, is a volunteer program. And, and had my brother had the motivation and the wherewithal to get sober in AA, that's what he would have done. Where I see a lot of families running into trouble is, you know, the kid's been to five, six, ten rehabs, and the child comes out and says, hey, you know what, I, I'm going to go to AA, I'm going to go to the sober home, or I'm going to live in my own apartment, it's my recovery, and I want to do it this way. And then, and then there's a relapse and the parents don't figure it out till things have gotten severe. And the and so they wind up back in a 30 day program. And very much that was Chris's story. There wasn't so more so than just giving him stuff. I think where our parents, I think my parents needed to insist on more accountability. In other words, you want an apartment. Great. We need you drug tested and alcohol monitored. You need to go to a therapist. We need someone verifying that you're going and like setting out actual conditions. And that's very much, you know, frankly, why I started the company. And out of our team, I have one of the more punitive mindsets, so to speak. Like I would say no young adult um, person with a substance use disorder who is inheriting a trust fund and has free reign wants to see me walking in the house because I'm much more like, nope, you know, you need to be drug tested for a year. And I always say, and, I, and Chris used to complain very much in his early days, like I'm tired of having an answer to mom and dad and it's my recovery and I want to live my life. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. As soon as you can pay for it, you can do whatever you want. Nice. Like, you know, when I went to business school and I get along very well with my parents, I live in the same building with them in Boston. But I, I would use myself as an example. I was got family support for many years, and then I finally got to an age where I'm like, well, this is embarrassing. I should be able to do this on my own. And I didn't want to hear from my father about, well, maybe you should consider doing this or that. So I find, and he was pretty good. He didn't do it a lot, but I was fiercely independent, and I didn't want that. I didn't want any kind of oversight on who I was dating or what I was doing with my career. So I built a career that could sustain myself. And I'm very grateful for the support I got, I, but I kept saying to my Chris, like, you can't have it both ways. You can't say you want this and you want a nice apartment and you want to, you know, be able to go to Starbucks every morning and then also complain when they're breathing down your neck. I was like, and by the way, and, and this has changed more recently as he's been into what I call real recovery, where he's embracing AA, which is certainly not the road for everyone, but for him, it was the right path. And he didn't just do it haphazardly. He actually really did it. Um, you can see a change in his thinking. Um, and I can give many, many examples of times where I've said, Hey, I don't want to ask you this, but, um, you know, but I, I worry a little bit about X, Y, Z. And he's always reassured me that I have every right to ask him that because of his history. Um, so, so long way of saying, I think that the worst, the enabling in our family came more from not having a good plan of accountability and, and really making an effort as family members to step out of it, you know, to not have my dad be the recovery police because he had the means to afford someone else being in that role and holding my brother accountable, which in our family system would have been a much healthier approach. And I would dare to say that's true for most families. Now, some families can't afford to, to set up an outside system, but families that can, I think there's a real advantage. So based on, again, and so based on everything that, that you've learned, especially in this experience, that's the beautiful thing about being an addict and, you know, giving someone 
suggestions or counseling them or sitting across the table and just listening to the words that come out of their mouth, right? We recognize all of it, right? So yeah. we, we can see when someone is in denial, when they're delusional, when a family member is, is heading right for danger. They're doing all the wrong things. And so for you, it's a lot easier for you to just stop them in their tracks, correct? Yep, that's exactly right. So a, a lot of, I mean, we try to stop them in our tracks. I think. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I hear say, you. We're we're a service business, so I feel like I am paid by families to give them the best. And sometimes the person comes to us themselves, but more often it's families or employers or somebody outside of the the IP or the identified person. Um, but I feel like I'm paid to give them the best possible advice. A lot of times, what I'm saying, families nod and nod and say, "Yep, that makes total sense," and then they get home. And the person pitches a fit or says, I don't want to do it that way. And they get like a deer in headlights and they can't make a decision, which, you know, that's unfortunate. But but you're absolutely right. A lot of what I want to discuss on this call, too, is just that ability to have the right kind of tough love. Because when someone's pitching a fit, you know, the king baby syndrome kicks in, the entitlement kicks in. Um, they know all the right buttons to push in their family members to get what they want. And in many cases, the family members are almost defenseless once they start pushing all those buttons and they have to learn how to start pushing back. And sometimes, like you said, the deer cotton headlights, you know, you almost have to teach them, you know, an immediate sort of like, I got to push back hard. And the only way to do that mm -hmm. is like, okay, well, if that's, if you're going to continue like this, then you're going to be on your own. That's to a certain yeah. degree, I've got to cut you off. I can't do this anymore. I can't just give you money because you're giving me this unbelievably plausible yet untrue statement for your behavior. You know, I think it's very difficult sometimes to say, I don't believe you, right? Yep. I think yep. for them to That's just exactly. say, just to even verbalize, I don't believe you is tough, right? I think that's right. And I think the other thing is families desperately want to believe um, that their loved one is finally telling the truth. I mean, we're dealing with this with another case right now where the family, I can, the father, when I asked him about, you know, this is what my daughter wants to do when I started to push and say, well, what about suggesting other options? Um, I, I can tell, you know, at the moment when I talked to him, he was sort of like, yeah, I, I think she would be open to it. I think that's something we can do. But as you know, when push came to shove and he talked to his daughter and she, she dug her heels and it was like, well, I think she's doing the work we want to see. And maybe in fact she is, and maybe in fact she'll be fine. I think what I try to caution families about, first of all, this is an art, not a science. There's nobody who has the magic pill meeting therapist, uh, cure, nothing. There's there I, in my personal belief is it's usually a suite of services at the right time. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into this. So you know, I'm not promising that our methodology or a treatment center's methodology is going to be the answer. I think more what I see are families who want so desperately to believe that this is the time. You know, they're saying the things the families always wanted to hear, and maybe it's genuine or maybe they mean it in that moment, but maybe it's and maybe it's not going to be there forever, or maybe in fact they're just manipulating because they don't like the scenario they're in. And so, what I try to talk to family members about is. This could be a message of love. It, it, they can have a voice in the recovery process, but you can say, if I want, if you want me to support you on this plan to go back to school, to live in your apartment, to whatever, I need some assurances that you're safe to do so. And as much as I want to believe you, historically, 
it hasn't worked out when I've just trusted you at your word. And that's a hard message, but the, it can be said out of love. I, the other thing I would say is my parents were good examples of people who also were paranoid the other direction. I mean, if Chris had a bad day or his eyes looked a little glassy, it was like, he relapsed. We know it. You know, the whole, the sirens are going up. O'Connor, you know, where, where's the police car? And so I, I will sometimes say for, and sometimes my mother was right. I mean, she caught the most recent relapse, which was three and a half years ago. Uh, before I did. And, and she told me, and she was like, you got to call him. I'm like, no, no, you're paranoid. And I called him. I'm like, God damn it. She is correct. Um, so I would say, so the, the other side of that is that I think sometimes the drug testing and alcohol monitoring is a way for the addict. Not it, You're dealing with data. It takes out this like, well, he's starting to think like he did, or he's starting to act in the, he's given me the same attitude that he did before. So, you know, instead of it being like vague conditions, I want to see my son be a, you know, act like the way I'm hoping he will or whatever. It's like, you know, you know, the goal is for the person to stay in recovery and we have evidence as to whether they are or they're not. And that sort of takes some of the guesswork out of it. And I know, again, there's no alcohol monitoring or drug testing plan that's perfect, but within reason, I always say it gives the person with the substance abuse disorder some protection from just having parents say, well, I know when I saw you yesterday, your eyes looked funny, you know, because I think there's a lot of that distrustful work that also gets exhausting for people with these issues to have to combat all the time. And also what I think, too, is that just in this typical and just in the conversation that we're having, uh, one of the things that you had mentioned is that uh, when Chris really started to take off and connect with his own recovery program, when you would call him on stuff, he would respond with, I see exactly where you're coming from. I can see where you would be concerned. I hear you. Uh, you've got nothing to worry about, X, Y, Z. So there wasn't that explosive, combative nature or behavior that comes when someone feels on the defensive and they feel like they're being attacked. And then, so then they just attack back, right? So there was that, there's that feeling of, of genuine communication of letting you know, here's where I'm at. Um, and I think that for family members, that's the sign that you need to be looking for. That's a sign that somebody is working a program and you communicating with them about what you feel is concerning you is met with a certain sense of um, understanding. Instead of you say, hey, listen, you know, I noticed something like this. There you go again. There you go again, judging me, questioning me, you know, what makes you think that I would do anything like that? And as soon as that combative behavior comes in, right, that should be a red flag immediately. Something is off. Something is wrong because if with, with that level of defensiveness, they're trying to deflect or they're rejecting something, you primarily. So it could mean that they're hiding something. Would you agree with that? I think so. I mean, I will say, so I can give you the specific instance where it, it, I literally was floored. Uh, I have these two small dogs, as I mentioned, and my, my, one of them is six pounds and she, I brought her to the hospital, like the animal hospital. She looked really odd. Her eyes, she was like panting and she couldn't stop. And I'm Googling. And finally I got so nervous. She almost became, I, I can never say a tacticardic. So I, I brought her to the hospital and they were like, Nope, you, she doesn't look good. We're going to bring her in. And the vet asked me, is there, she said, I'm not judging, but is there any chance she's consumed drugs? So I'm sitting there with my mother and it's now, this is like a year and a half ago. And you know, it's the middle of the night. You've waited four hours to see the vet at this animal hospital. And now she's just hit on like the one hot button issue 
that I and and ironically, I also ran into a former client in the in the, in the hospital as well. So it, it's this very like weird confluence of events. But in any case, I panic and I go outside because I look at my mother and I'm like, oh, my God, what if Chris relapsed? Because my dog spent a lot of time in my parents home and my parents. My brother was living with my parents at the time. So I call my, I go outside, I call my brother and I say, and I'm almost in tears because I think my dog's going to die. And I was like, I hate to ask you this, but I have to. I said, is there any chance something happened with you? Like, have you been using or is there, you know, did you leave drugs in your room and somehow she got a hold of one? And the words he opened up with were, first of all, you never have to apologize for what you're asking, for asking me this question. If I ever respond defensively, that's a sign that I am trying to hide something. Um, you, given what I've done to this family, um, you have every right, anytime you have a question to ask me something like this. And he said, Beautiful. and then we went through. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it brings tears to my eyes to yeah. talk about it, honestly, because it was such like a moment that I never thought I would have. And then he had a very funny follow-up answer, which is, no, I have not used... And he's like, I can, you know, is it possible that something was there? Sure. He's like, but I'm such an addict that, and he used that word. I, I try, I'm trying to get away from using that word, although I've used it before. Um, he said, I, I have such a problem that uh, if I historically knew there was even one pill left in my room during my using days, I would have spent decades just <laughs> trying to find the one pill. So he's like, the chance that it was casually like strewn on the floor is probably not not as likely if that makes sense so i i still to this day laugh about it because uh because i thought it was very funny so it is hysterical it's absolutely <laughs> it is uh, and it's so true and i'm gonna go ahead and just comment on that i refer to myself 14 years later as an addict okay straight up straight up i have i have no connection to it in the sense that someone who's a normie has the same connection to it because to them I'm reaffirming that I'm an addict and and actually I'm not. Okay. All I'm doing is just I recognize what I have. I don't underestimate it. I know the mm-hmm. potential it has, the power it has, and I respect it that much that I always I always recognize myself as an addict. But not in the sense that it controls my life in any aspect whatsoever. It actually frees me. It's actually a a, a way of freeing myself just by saying I'm an addict and never, ever for any, even a moment to think I've got this. I've got this under control. This guy can't touch me anymore, right? I don't delude myself. So, so, and and not only that, when we go to meetings, it's always like, hi, my name is Omar and I'm an addict. Yeah. So when we say it, we recognize it, we move on with our lives. And I say, man, I'm such an addict. I would do something. Like that. And but there's no emotional connection to it. But my mother does the same thing. I'll say that to, in front of my mom or my my wife. She, You're not an addict anymore. You're not. But you don't use it. <laughs> and it like almost freaks them out. I'm like, relax, relax. It's just I can't let this thing ever believe this power, this 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 addiction. I can never let it have any sort of a any sort of a, a gap or an opening in there where it thinks I've got this thing under control or I've dismissed its power, right? Mm-hmm. That's all. I just recognize it, but know this, right? I go to meetings for that reason. I still have a sponsor 14 years later because of that. You know, I take, I do all my daily foundational activities that, that keep me clean and sober. So, so I can understand where he comes from. And I also understand where you come from. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the here's the biggest takeaway from all that too and for the family members that are listening what we hope to hear what we hope to 
develop is a relationship similar to what you and Chris have, and that is watching a family member who has battled tremendously with this disease of addiction come out the other side and now has a program that's so strong that discussing it, being open about it, being questioned about it, does no longer create a trigger. It no longer creates that need to protect himself, to deflect, to be defensive. Um, it is a very um, accepting place that uh, the addict comes from and is able to have relationships today because of that openness and because of, of that ability to communicate um, and come from a place of recovery. Uh, a strong foundation of recovery displays that. And so when you're not received with that level of openness, then there's reason for concern. Can, can we say that? I think that's a very, that's beautifully put. All right, good. All right. I always like to come from a very PC uh, way because people are, it's such a sensitive and delicate topic. And like you said, the family members want to believe what they're hearing, but they also have to recognize the tone in which it's coming from. And if it's not coming from a place, a loving, understanding energy, and it's coming from an anxious, nervous, angry, frustrated place, then you have to recognize that something is not right here. Something is not right. If you're saying something and they're not agreeing or they're being defensive, then you have to ask yourself, what are they being defensive about? And I think that that's a tough thing for a lot of family members to cope with. I think that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, part of the thing that's been really powerful for me, and and we have a lot of people who are recovering in our practice, and we have family members of people who are recovering, is is getting it from both angles. Because I think, and, and the way our system works is we have someone separate working with family members then who's working with the individual going through this. Because I do think the family's experience in these things are differently. In the same way that you know, my brother felt, and and rightfully so for a long time, like he wasn't in control of his own life. And we had, my father was pulling all the strings. And sometimes that was talk when he was trying to manipulate, but sometimes he was, he was right. You know, my parents are so scared. I swear if they could have kept him in a facility until he was 47, they would have, you know, they, they, that, that was sort of my dad's mentality. So I think, I think on the one hand, like the person who's struggling with this needs to create their own path and needs to find a way to be in a better place. And, but a family has to have some reassurance that they're in, especially if they're financially supporting the person that they're going to be healthy and safe. And so I think my experience has been to, to kind of come to a place where there's some degree of overlap in those two agendas. It, it's usually two different people who can advise the family system that it's very hard to have one person who's trying to address the concerns of the mother, address the concerns of the daughter, let's say, and come to a resolution altogether because their agendas are different. You know, for somebody who's in early recovery, they're trying to fight for their independence. Sometimes they're fighting for their disease. They're trying to figure out how to do this on their own. And the family is trying to oftentimes, you know, protect their future, protect their health. And it can be very, very, it's very confusing. And I always say the last thing I would say is I think for in this work, the thing that's become very apparent to me and the families we've dealt with is we're asking them to do something tremendously difficult. We're asking them to stop protecting what they perceive to be the best interests 
you know, or, or reprioritize maybe the best interests of their loved ones. For many of the families we work with, you know, where they go to school, what opportunities they have down the road, what they, what protecting what their daughter or son say they want. That's like been their major motivation and, and what they view their role as a parent to be. And so when you're asking them when it comes to addiction to say, I know they're saying they want X, but we're telling you you have to do Y to protect their health and their well-being. It's very counterintuitive. And I think that's why I like to think about in the same way you're acting, uh, you're asking uh, somebody with a substance use issue to make a good choice every day or whatever the, the right phrase is in AA where they talk about making you know, s- small steps and, and good decisions on a you know, moment-to-moment basis. I think you have to sort of do the same with families because it's unlikely that a parent who's been hovering for 25 years is all of a sudden, or a parent who's been really scared is all of a sudden going to like flip around and say, okay, well, you're telling me I need to let them hit the rock bottom and I'm just going to agree to do that. I just... <laughs> I, I, it's just not, it's just not intuitive, right? Like if you're, you know, I always say, and, and this is where we'll get into a lot of debates with families. If, if your loved one had cancer and they're sitting in the, the bed and they say, I don't want to take my medicine, would you just say, okay, no problem. Um, or would you try and force it down their nice. throat? So, yeah, that's um, a great question. So uh, anyway, long way way of saying, like, I think, I, I, I think the dynamics, I mean, most people who have, have dealt with this professionally or personally know that it's, it's more complicated than sometimes it's portrayed to be. Um, I also think there's just a lot of parents and this is my own personally view, personal view. I am not PC. I think therapy is an essential part of this equation for parents and for the people struggling with issues. But I think sometimes when parents are really in crisis, kind of boiling things down and giving them options and being a little more directive, at least in my experience, has a better approach. You know, we had a lot of therapists who would say, well, how does that make you feel? And what do you think you should do? And and uh, in our family system, that got us nowhere. That usually got us to find a new professional because my, my father particularly had just no patience for it. And it wasn't what he needed. He needed someone to say, like, stop the madness. What you're doing is nutty. Like, come on. And it was just, you know, say it with a sense of humor, but say nonetheless, you know, we need to just sort of manage this. So that's beautiful. And that's, this is what I wanted to get to. This is, that's, that's the information. It's the hard truths that the family members don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the hard truths. They want to believe that somehow they're going to be able to turn in their child, you're going to fix them, they're going to come back, and all's going to be good, right? And the work involved on both their part and patient's part is intricate and, and integral in them finding their recovery. Because I would assume that at this point, they both need recovery, the family members and the addict. They've both been through so much that they both need it. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, the amount of families we have seen who have grown children, I'm talking children, quote unquote, you know, I'm using air quotes here in Boston, um, who are in their 40s. I mean, I'll never forget a case we had a while ago and the father, this was the son, you know, he was a, he was a professional. He was actually a really nice guy, but really struggled with an active addiction. Now he had... The son had children of his own and was married, although the marriage was on the rocks. The father, and the son was probably in his mid-40s, the father said to me at one point, well, my wife and I have a trip to India, and the son had just been in, you know, just entered into a rehabilitation facility, and he was getting out, you know, a month later, and the father was like, I think I'm going to need to cancel that trip so we can be available 
when my son gets out of rehab and the father lived in Chicago and the son lived in Boston. And I, you know, I was taken aback and I thought, I looked at the father and I was like, well, what do you, you know, you've hired our firm to case manage your son. Your son is a, has children of his own. Like, what are you going to, like, why would you cancel a trip so that you can be quote unquote available to your son when he gets out of rehab? Like, that's just lunacy. Like at some point you, you've held up your life for 10 years, you know, taking a breath every time it looks like it's okay to take a breath because of his sobriety. I'm not suggesting you can't be supportive, but the idea that you're going to like turn your life upside down for a fully grown (laughs) man, like it's, you know, even me and and I'll admit in our worst moments, I mean, I went and picked Chris up in Harlem in the middle of the night from a drug dealer's house. There were a lot of things we did that, you know, nobody would say were good ideas. But for me, this was like one of these things like, Maybe it was some yep. transference. I was like, is this what my dad's going to be doing? Like chasing my brother at 50 when my brother Chris uh-huh. is 50 years old saying like, I hope he makes it to AA today. Like I was like, this is just ridiculous. So I, I said it in a nice, much nicer fashion than I'm saying now. But but even with clients, I use a lot of humor because I do think, you know, to the extent the family can tolerate it, there there is a point at which very smart people are making very very dumb decisions you know and and they think they're doing it in the best interest but they're just you know when we we chose Sierra Tucson for my brother for his first rehab and the reason we did it was for two reasons one a family friend friend had been there and, and heard good you know we had heard good things like but no relation to us no context as to what they went there for but a friend's friend went there so at $40,000, might as well not do no further digging than that. And then the other piece was, well, the weather is very nice there. Like, we feel really badly. He has to go away to treatment and give up his, you know, semester at Georgetown. So we should send we should send him to a place with really nice weather. And, and fortunately, it was a good experience. But, I, you know, though I said to my dad, like, people, people pay $50,000 a year for college. And there's Princeton Review and there's books and there's a whole industry around placing people into facilities. These places charge in a month what people pay for a year and and people make the decision based off of weather or websites or, you know, a friend of a friend. I mean, it's just lunacy. It's absolute lunacy. And that's the best part of like even getting into this interview, right? And then the the codependency from the parents, right? Like, let me be available just in case you need me. What could we possibly need you for? That's well, and the ironic part was this son. I met the son with the dad. Now, granted, the son was under the influence when I when I interacted with the two of them. He could not have been worse to his father. I mean, he was terrible to his father. And you know, there were probably reasons for that. He was probably under the influence. Who you know, who the heck knows? But all I was thinking in my head is like. No, in fact, it's better if you're in India because if he's mad, he is not going to be lovely on the phone. And I would rather have him take some of that energy out on a case manager from our team who's in recovery, who remembers when he was like that, and frankly is also going to go home to his own family or his own situation at the end of the night and not take it so personally in the way that a family member does, where, you know, my brother says something that hurts my feelings, it stings, and you remember it, and then you interact for the next 20 years based on something that happened, you know, 20 years ago. As a professional, you have a little bit of a different relationship. It's not that it doesn't bother, it's a little less, it's a little less personal, hopefully. Absolutely. All right. So then, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. I absolutely love all the information, just that really solid perspective of what you see, because that's a kind of like the the missing element in a lot of my interviews is just that relationship and how to navigate these relationships 
between family members and the addicts, what happens when they go to rehab, how much input they have, how much influence, how much codependency there is, and then drawing those hard lines that need to be drawn. And you know, if you're listening to this and it stings or it hurts, then it's time to draw a line. It's time to look at your own limits and boundaries and start closing those in, making those stronger, because what you've been doing so far hasn't been serving you. And, you know, a little bit of tough love could prevent you from years and years of multiple rehabs, multiple hospitals, incarceration, court appearances. All this thing can be prevented if you just push back a little bit and you, and you stop allowing the addict to dictate the terms. Fair enough? That's right. That's right. Okay. All right. So good. So now, Arden, you're in, uh, where are you located? So our, my, my home is in downtown Boston. Our offices are just south of the city, although we tend to do work in people's homes. So we're, and we serve, we serve clients nationally, but we have um, a big base of clients here in the, in the Boston, uh, greater Boston area. Okay. So what's the best way for our listeners to reach out to you? Sure. So they are welcome to our website is O'ConnorPG.com. So it stands O'Connor, O-C-O-N-N-O-R-P is in professional, G is in group.com. And there's a button you can press. Um, you can also call our office line, which is 617-910-3940. Um, and my cell, which is publicly available these days, is 617-290-9818. We're all field-based employees. So I, um, I, you know, we tend to get a lot of people who, you know, we, t- we tend to get people who call us and we're, we're often in the, f- in the field. So we take, we tend to give our cell phones out pretty, pretty, uh, in a pretty liberal fashion. Okay. Beautiful. Um, and so what kind of material, by the way, folks, as, as, as always, um, all that information is going to be listed on Arden's show notes. Uh, on the Share Podcast website. So you can find her, you can start from there and go to the website. Um, but what kind of reading material initially for family members that are looking for a good book to kind of discuss a lot of what we just discussed and go into details, how to navigate through that relationship between parent and child or sibling and child? What are some good resources? Oh, there's, there's tons of them out there. I will tell you my favorite book out there is a book called Addiction Recovery, A Family's Journey. And uh, a woman uh, who is a consultant, so full disclosure, she's a consultant for our company because I like things to be transparent. But her name is Diana Clark. Um, she wrote the book. It's on paperback. She actually has an audio CD um, so if they need copies of the book or, or copies of the audio CD, they can also, they're welcome to call me. I think it's a very simple, uses a lot of case examples. Um, I think that book is fantastic. Um, the founders of C- Center for Motivation and Change also have a book out. Um, and it, and I'm trying to remember um, the name of it that I'm having trouble. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book, but I certainly can send it to you. It's written by, um, I assume it's by uh, Jeff Foote and Carrie Wilkins, who run a treatment center, Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change. So I think that's another great option for families. Um, And then there's a hundred. I mean, I have enjoyed some of the 
stories that people have given. You know, if you read David Sheff's first book, I love that, A Beautiful Boy. I'll confess I haven't read his second one. I liked even the book that his son wrote, Tweak, to get in the mindset of somebody. But beyond addiction and the and the one by Diana Clark are much more for family members. Um, and frankly, those are the people who I think are often starved. I think if somebody is really looking for practical resources on like the industry and rehab facilities and understanding the industry, it's a, it's a longer book, but there's a book called inside rehab by Ann Fletcher. That's actually quite good that, that details different facilities and her investigation. It's just, um, it's less about, you know, how do you confront a loved one about their own addiction issue? It's more about, um, you know, how, how does the industry itself work and how do you make decisions about treatment? Beautiful. I love it. These are great resources and we need those. As a matter of fact, I just recently had a woman hit me up. I won't mention her name, uh, but she says that she's got a son, 19-year-old heroin addict, and she just started listening to the podcast. Thank you so much. So as soon as this goes live, I'm going to be having her listen to this interview. She's going to love it. It's got a lot of great resources. Um, so Arden, tell us, what is the best suggestion you have ever received when it came to dealing with Chris? Can it be what our family ever received or yes. just personally? Yes. Okay. So the best advice we got, and it will be, and I, I am not a marketer. We don't accept referral fees from Sierra Tucson. So I'm going to own all that up front. Um, because I, you know, sometimes people say these things and there's a wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, we're, we're not going to get cookies or anything like that from, <laughs> from the marketing people there. But I will say the best advice we got as a family, and it was very early on and it's a good example of our family not being ready to hear it. Um, when my brother was there, my parents went to family weekend, you know, Sierra Tucson has people with cross addiction. So workahol workaholics, people with sexual compulsivity issues, mental health issues. So they went to family week. I think it was a really hard experience for them because it was their first one and they were overwhelmed. Um, but at the end of it, they sit, they sat down with my brother's counselor who said, you know, your son should go to a uh, small town. He should take a community college course. He should not go back to Georgetown. He should focus on his recovery first he should learn how to support himself financially and gradually make his way back to a life. And if, if he can stay sober for a couple of years, then you can talk about whatever other plans he has. And my father and mother are very polite people. And I think they were like, yeah, that's a great idea. And they walked out of his office, literally rolled their eyes and said, that is not happening. You know, he's a month into Sierra Tucson. He's going back to college in six months, like most parents think. And we, the big joke in our family is 10 and a half years later, he went to a small town out in the Berkshires. He took a community college class, <laughs> transferred to college, learned to support himself. So like literally it went full circle. So uh, I would say it, my parents would have saved probably half a million dollars in costs that they spent on rehab and a lot of emotional energy and time had they followed that advice in the beginning. Um, but it's hard. You know, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to parents who say like, but this is so important to them or, you know, I really want to protect their future. So, um, so that was probably one of the best pieces of advice that they got. Oh my God. Listeners, uh, just when you get to this point, I'm going to be referring every single one of my codependent parents wondering how to deal with their drug addicted son or daughter. This is the interview to listen to and watch. <laughs> this is there couldn't be a better storyline there of just like absolute 
truth, right? It's almost like the overnight success that took 10 years in the making, right? I mean, when you have that company, it's like, oh my God, look at that guy. It's an overnight su- success. You don't know what it took to get there, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and, and the last thing I'll say just very quickly on just a plugging and one last resource, you know, we're a we're a company and, and we're, we, because we don't take insurance, which someday hopefully we'll be able to, you know, we, we work with a certain group, but, um, drugfree.org has free parent coaches that are trained in the craft method. And I find that to be like a very, another really good resource for parents who are searching for something, because to your point, had somebody said in the beginning, well, that's interesting advice. Maybe you should consider it. Maybe my parents would have, you know, at the time they thought they knew best and, and maybe it took that long, but, uh, but I think I, I think the more parents can hear this from multiple places, at least in my experience, the better the position they're in to at least know later down the road, wow, I was given that advice and maybe it's time to follow it. Beautiful. I love it. All right. So you yourself, for those yep. parents that are listening right now, those brothers and sisters and parents, what is the best suggestion you would give them? So I'll, I'm going to do a shout out to, to, well, I'll do both. So parents, I would say the best things I can say are to treat this like a chronic disease that it is. It's been defined that way, but it's not a broken arm where they're going to go into rehab or they're going to go to a detox and they're going to get fixed, pretend it's diabetes, and they're going to need constant monitoring. And I believe a, a combination of accountability and therapeutic support. So I'm a big, to the extent you can get the juice up to, to get your loved one to agree to drug testing, alcohol monitoring for between one and five years. Five is a hard number to sell. One is hard to sell, but I think <laughs> that's, that's a minimum. That's where the statistics start to go up. If you, you know, if you make it through a year of sobriety. So combining that with some therapeutic resources and, and even if those are Medicaid funded, however you get there, that's probably the best the best option you can give. I would also say matching the professional with the diagnosis, the amount of families who've told me, well, we paid for this therapist or a psychiatrist and they're not an addiction expert. It, it's just, in my personal opinion, it's muddying, the, you know, it, you're walking into dangerous waters um, and not necessarily getting the best support. So that's for the families. And I would also say find ways to, whether you read a craft book, but find ways to take care of yourself every day. And whether it's taking a trip or, or simply not making excuses and not blaming yourself when something doesn't go the way you need it to go with your loved one. For siblings, you know, the most common complaints we hear like resentment, frustration, sadness, and this sort of theory of like, there's not enough oxygen in the room. You know, Chris took up so much time and energy. So I would say, you know, trying to find ways, um, to, to either get your own help. I went and saw a therapist when things got bad with Chris, um, to be as supportive as you can to your other family members, to take a step back when you really can't be involved and, and to do that in a way that communicates concern as opposed to, I'm so mad at you. I don't, you know, I want nothing to do with you as opposed to like, Hey, look, I'm realizing my emotions are really getting in the middle of this and knowing that, you know, I need some time to, to process that. Um, I think it's important siblings get educated about uh, about substance use. We see a lot of siblings who have mistaken impressions as well um, about you know what the disease is. I you know I found it really supportive to be able to go to AA with my brother um, and 
and to have a lot of sober experiences with him, go out with his friends. You know, I'm not someone who feels comfortable with 10 sober guys drinking a glass of wine. That's just never going to be my style. Um, and, and, and I just, I think it's weird. Um, and, and so I found it and I, and for me, it was like a really good experience of like, I mean, I remember being in a restaurant in Great Barrington with, with my brother and all his sober friends. And I apologized to the table next to us. And I said, you know, I, I hate to say this, there's like not an ounce of alcohol, but we are the loudest table in this place. And oh, we were yeah. laughing. And as, as somebody who is, who does drink, I, it was a great experience for me. Cause I was like, boy, this is like, look how much joy there is. And even, you know, as somebody who has like very drinks well within normal limits, I either certainly been scenarios where people have been drinking and it's not been that much fun. And in fact, dare I say, it goes the other direction where there's some negative behaviors, even with people who don't have problems. So, uh, you know, for me, I, I found if, if you're in a place mentally where you can be supportive of a loved one, go to AA with them or whatever self-help group they do, engage with their sober peers and really try and put yourself in their shoes. Um, because, because that, that's where my love for my brother always came through. Even in the moments when I was pissed, uh, you know, and I did have some moments where I yelled at him and really cursed and, and got angry. Um, but if I came back to like, okay, I can see, I can see why he's behaving this way, or I can, you know, I can listen to him in a moment when I can hear it. And I don't try, I try not to judge. And I try to just sit here and be still with him. Uh, it, it always brought me back to a place of like, all right, can I do anything to help in this particular scenario? This is absolute gold. Oh, oh my God. I love it. This has been phenomenal. Phenomenal. Thank you so much, Arden. No, not at all. I really enjoy I love talking, as it's clear. <laughs> but, uh, I know. I, I appreciate the opportunity. So thank you. I think that there's, there's such a need for clarity. And that's what I appreciate so much about this particular interview. It's no nonsense. It's clear. It's like anybody can follow along and you'll know exactly where you're at in the process when you're listening along on this interview. Um, so it's definitely going to be, you know, my go-to resource for family members. This has been awesome. You rock. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Beautiful. All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.